If you have your Bible this morning, open with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. We're going to start there. I'm going to give you fair warning. We will be moving through a ton of different passages this morning. The message I'm about to share with you is a part of a three-week series in sort of our spring, uh, spring training emphasis, specifically about kingdom economics, kingdom economics. And I'll explain what I mean by that here as we get started. It's a topical message, and what that means is uh, normally in this church, or what our usual pattern is, is that we're working through a book, right? We've just finished a study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Before that, we've studied the book of Hebrews, we've studied the book of John, we've studied the book of Genesis. We will be studying the book of Ecclesiastes after Easter. We'll move into the Minor Prophets. We're going to study the Gospel of Mark next year. Uh, we, We like to move verse by verse through books of the Bible around here, and that is our typical practice. But occasionally, there is value in doing something topical. When you do a topical message, like the one I'm doing this morning, that's where you're gathering uh, content from the entirety of the scripture to sort of formulate um, an overarching view of what the Bible says on a particular topic. That's why it's called topical, right? We don't do those very often, but when we do, they're fun, but it means you got to be ready to move around in your Bible quite a bit or pay attention to the screens or take some good notes because we'll be moving fast. Luke chapter 12 is where I want to kick this off to explain what I'm talking about when I talk about kingdom economics. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. It says this, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? That's really an interesting thing for Jesus to say. Number one, it's interesting that there's a guy in the crowd who says, hey, tell my brother he's got to split the inheritance with me. That feels a lot like riding in the car with me and my kids who are going, hey, tell her that Taylor Swift's best record is red or whatever. And I'm like, why do I, why do I care about this? I don't care about this, right? Why are you making me in the middle of it? This guy says to Jesus, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. And Jesus' response is kind of... Uh, why are you bothering me about this, right? It's interesting that he says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Because Jesus is the great judge, right? He is the one who is absolutely the, the one who rules all things. So it's interesting for him to make this statement. What he's not saying here is, I don't have an opinion on this. What he is saying is that the thing you're asking me to weigh in on doesn't matter. And he'll go on to elaborate that. The man says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He said, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In verse 15, he goes on, he says this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told him a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many, uh, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's a really interesting response from Jesus, both to the man who asks him to uh, tell his brother to divide his inheritance, what he says to the man, and then also what he says to his disciples. He tells a story about a man who has all kinds of stuff. In fact, he has so much stuff that he can't fit it into his barn, so he tears down his barn and he builds a bigger barn and he's able to sit back and tell his own soul, soul, you've made it. You've gotten there, right? You don't have anything to worry about. You don't have anything to work for. You can take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And yet that man's soul is required of him and he dies. And then Jesus says, what good were these bigger barns? What good was all this stuff that you had collected? It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's interesting that Jesus says things like, take care, one's life does not consist in possessions. He says things like, be rich towards God or seek his kingdom or look for treasure that lasts or remains. He finishes in this particular section by reminding us that our heart follows our treasure. So the emphasis from Jesus, and in this, in this series, you'll kind of see where I'm headed here. The emphasis from Jesus is that we have to treasure what has eternal value rather than what has temporal value. That there are things we can prioritize, but they are things that only have value in our current setting and do not have value in the kingdom of God or in eternity. First John says something similar in first John uh, chapter two, verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's this emphasis in the Bible that some of the things we prioritize, things like money and possessions, things like status or power, things like knowledge or comfort or pleasure, that all of these things matter the most to us in the world in which we live, right? They're the things that people are fighting for and striving for, things that people put their entire life emphasis towards, gathering more power, more influence, more pleasure, more rest, more status, more money. And yet all of those things ultimately are worthless in the kingdom of God. They ultimately don't have any value beyond the sphere in which we live right now. And what Jesus is saying in Luke 12 and in other places is, it is possible for you to live your life now in such a way that you're investing in eternal things. It's possible for you to live your life now investing in temporal things that will only be of value for for a few years while you're alive on this earth. Or it's possible for you to live your life seeking treasure in heaven, seeking kingdom treasure. So, so the natural question then for us, and this is where our series gets its idea, is to say, what is the treasure of the kingdom of God? What is treasure in heaven? What is valuable in the kingdom of God? We understand from the book of Hebrews that Moses valued things this way. Listen to what it says about Moses in Hebrews 11. 
In Hebrews 11, verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Imagine the kind of wealth and status and power. Imagine the kind of influence, the kind of pleasure, right, that Moses had as an adopted son of the Pharaoh. And yet the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You see that word fleeting? It's the very same thing that Jesus is emphasizing in Luke 12. That you can live your life to enjoy pleasures that are fleeting now, or you can prioritize the way Moses does and see that there is something of greater value. He says he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Imagine that, right? Being identified with Christ, Moses chose, over the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You hear the value system of Moses as it's articulated in Hebrews chapter 11 is one I'd like for us as a church to get our arms around. This value system that says there are things that have value on earth and there are things that have value in heaven. So what are those things? Well, this kingdom economic series we're going to be in for three weeks, it sets up nicely what we'll talk about in the resurrection on Easter and then what we'll talk about when we get into Ecclesiastes following that. Because when we get into Ecclesiastes, what we'll find, and I don't want to ruin the study for you, But what we'll find there is that the writer of Ecclesiastes has tried all the things that the world has to offer and he's found them empty. So if Jesus says that, and if the writer to Ecclesiastes says that, and if Moses chose that, it behooves us then as human beings to look and say, is it possible that I've put all of my treasure in the wrong things? I've spent my life investing in things that don't matter. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what, what is the treasure of heaven? What is valuable in the economy of the kingdom of God? And we're going to take three weeks and we're going to look at the three primary ones, in my opinion, of what is treasured in the kingdom of God. The first we'll talk about this morning is glory. Glory is the primary treasure of the kingdom of God. And that's because it's rooted in the very character of God. We're going to talk about glory this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about love. And then the week after that, on Palm Sunday, we'll be talking about service and sacrifice. Three of the treasures of the kingdom of God. Things we can invest in today that will never rust or fade. That will never be stolen. That can never be taken away. That will never diminish. An investment in the glory of God today lasts forever. So as we start this series, we start by talking about the glory of God. The glory of God as the treasure of heaven. This works out nicely because it wasn't that long ago we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31, you'll remember it says there in no uncertain terms, in whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Remember that? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 similarly says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. We're going to think for a second with me about the the idea that glory belongs to God. If you were to look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, there's a place in Isaiah 43 where God actually says, I created everything 
for my glory. I created everything for my glory. You go all the way to the end of our study in the scriptures, all the way to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, in talking about a time to come uh, where it says that all of the elders fell down before God. They cast their crowns before him and they sing or say in verse 11 of Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory. And honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When we talk about the glory of God, we affirm as a church and as followers of Jesus that God is worthy of glory because he created all things. That we worship and honor the one who gave us life and breath. He's worthy of glory. We should praise him because apart from him we would have no life. Does that make sense? So we talk here about this glory of God. We are called to glorify God in whatever we do, in everything that we are. So, so now then the question is, well, what is glory? Because if I just keep saying the word glory, there's that thing that can happen in your minds, right? Where it starts to not even make sense anymore. If we're going to say that money or power or pleasure, that those things are temporal and transient and that glory lasts forever, we have to establish what we mean by the glory of God. So let me give you a definition. And you can agree with this or you can tweak it. You can disagree. I don't think you can disagree with it, but you might want to make some adjustment to it. But here's the way I would define glory for the sake of understanding glory as treasure in heaven. Here's the definition. Glory is the recognizable expression of the many perfections of God that he actively and passively puts on display. Let me say it again. Glory is the recognizable expression of the many perfections of God that he actively and passively puts on display. Okay, let's unpack that just for a second, right? The recognizable expression. When we talk about glory, what we're talking about is something that we can perceive. It's something that we can see. It's something we can understand. So God has revealed himself in, in particular ways so that people can know him, right? We don't know him fully. We don't know him exhaustively. We don't know everything about him. In fact, we affirm that we will spend all of eternity mining the depths of the glory of God. But he has revealed himself in particular ways. He has expressed his many perfections. We believe that God is perfectly loving and that he's perfectly powerful and that he's perfectly present and that he's perfect in all of his attributes, right? That God is the pinnacle of all things. And God has expressed his many perfections in both active ways, like for instance, the incarnation, right? In sending his son Jesus, he expresses his perfect love, his perfect grace, his perfect mercy. He expresses his perfect care for his children, his perfect fatherhood. Aspects of who God is, his glory are put on display actively when Jesus comes in the incarnation. Actively, God puts his glory on display when the sun rises in the morning, right? We see that he's a perfect creator and a perfect sustainer, that he has perfect power, right? All of those perfections, and there are many, are expressed in a discernible way because God intended them to, because God wanted us to see him and to know him. That says something about his perfect accessibility, that God doesn't want to just exist and be off in space, separate from his creation, but that he wants us to see him and to know him. When we talk about the glory of God as the treasure of heaven, we're talking about the recognizable expression of the many perfections of God that he actively and passively puts on display. There are things about God's character that are, that are just true uh, intrinsically and aren't necessarily an expression of his work, but they're just true of who God is. And as we study his word, as we walk with him, 
we increasingly see and discern these expressions. And that is the glory of God. Now, the second question with the glory of God, and sorry, I don't want to lose you here. But if again and again the Bible is calling us and showing us that we are to glorify God, there's a difference between the glory of God and our glorifying Him. You see the difference, right? If uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, In everything you do, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Well, God is glorious. How do we glorify a glorious God, right? If He is expressing these many perfections of Himself, both actively and passively, what does it mean for us to glorify Him? Well, Our glorification of God, follow this, our lives are meant to glorify God. Westminster Confession affirms that. And what it means to glorify is to re-express, right? To re-express the many perfections of God in both active and passive ways. We re-express them. What does that look like? Well, the re-expression of the many perfections of God can be expressed in the singing of corporate worship. We did that a few minutes ago. We're going to do it again. Right? When we gather in a room like this and you look around and there are some people who've got their arms folded and their heads bowed and they're worshiping. There are people who are dancing. There are people who've got their hands in the air. There are people who are weeping. There are people who are shouting. People who are clapping. The, the re-expression takes many forms. But all our worship ever is, is a re-expression of a perfection of God that he first expressed. Does that make sense? We're just re-articulating it in a way that makes sense to us and is discernible by other people. We glorify God when we take things he has already shown and told and we re-express them in our unique way. That's what glorifying God is. And that can actually happen in your thoughts. When you think the truths of God after him, he is glorified. It can happen in your actions when you do things that look like God or that put God's love and mercy and grace, kindness on display. You are re-expressing one of his many perfections or multiple of his many perfections in ways that are discernible. It happens in our thoughts. It happens in our actions. It happens in our attitudes towards things. When we're patient and kind, when the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us, that is a re-expression of a perfection of God. Does that make sense? Right? You tracking with me here? We re-express. But here's an important thing to note as we talk about the glory of God. Our glorification, our re-expression of the perfections of God does not make him more glorious. Does that make sense? I know I keep saying, does that make sense? But I really want this to sink in. Our re-expression does not make him more glorious. He is perfectly glorious and he has perfect glory in all of his perfections, right? So when we worship him, it's not like all of a sudden the glory of God goes up on a scale. When we re-express the truth of his love and his kindness, his beauty, his power, his presence, when we re-express those things in many forms, it's not like his glory becomes greater, Right? It's not like he becomes more famous or becomes bigger or more loving or more powerful. Um, I, I've been wanting for many weeks to, uh, to affirm the fact that Javier has been cooking a really delicious breakfast burrito in, in the well across the way here, right? In our little coffee shop. He cooks it all week. Uh, it's delicious. In fact, it's my favorite breakfast burrito currently within like a five mile radius of our church. And I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to keep that coffee shop afloat. I really do like that breakfast burrito. But when I tell you that I think Javier's breakfast burritos in the well are delicious, I don't make those burritos any more or less delicious. Does that make sense? They are delicious by their nature. My affirming how delicious I believe they are, what it can do is increase the respect for his burritos. Because what you might do after hearing me say I like the burrito is you might go try one. 
Now, once you try one, you might also go, you know what? McWaters knows what he's talking about. It's a good breakfast burrito. And then look, the burrito doesn't become more delicious when two of us agree or three of us agree. It is a delicious breakfast burrito, full stop. But the more of us affirm it, what happens? Continued re-expression, right? There is a replication of re-expression of the many perfections of God. Is that confusing, right? How does it happen? When I sing his praises, people look at me and they go, what's he, why is he so excited about this God? Maybe I should get to know this God. When I take a card and I invite somebody to grandma's, you know, pancake breakfast, they go, why would a grown man hand me this card and invite him to sing? This Jesus must matter to him. When I re-express uh, compassion and kindness, it doesn't make God more glorious. It doesn't make him more kind. It doesn't make him more loving. It doesn't make him more gracious. But in that re-expression, there is replication. And God is glorified in increasing measure, right? He's glorified in increasing measure, but he doesn't become more glorious. The glory of God is most clearly revealed uh, in Christ, right? John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus isn't re-expressing the perfections of God. Jesus is the perfect expression of the many perfections of God, right? The glory of God is most clearly revealed in Christ. We see that not only in John 1, 14, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 say, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed uh, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? Jesus is the glory of God, and Jesus glorifies God. Because he's both divine and human, he's actually the only one who does both, right? But Jesus clearly reveals the glory of God, the expression of God's perfections actively and passively. Interestingly, and I would say maybe miraculously, it is also true that God glorifies himself in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Soak this in for a second. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians in a minute. But check this out. The glory of God shines in us because of God's choice. God chose to allow the glory of God in the face of Jesus to shine in the life of his people. So not only does Jesus glorify God, not only is Jesus the glory of God, but his church glorifies God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 16 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We are his glorious inheritance, right? The glory of God put on display, re-expressed in us individually and in us as the community, the church, the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God has revealed this mystery, which is his glory expressed as Christ dwells in us, both Jew and Gentile, right? 
The glory of God most clearly revealed in Christ. It's miraculously revealed through us. And it is our failure to glorify God that defines sin. So follow me here. When we talk about sin, right? Sometimes when you think about sin, you're thinking about like robbing banks or murder. Or you're thinking of, you know, like all these terrible things, right? And those are sins. But sin, according to the Bible, is simply a failure to do the thing we were built to do. You and I were built to glorify God. So anytime we fall short of God's glory, the Bible calls that sin. A failure to glorify God or to re-express his many perfections in thought, word, deed, and attitude is the very definition of sin. Romans 3.23 famously says, all of us have sinned and what? Fallen short of God's glory. Why? Because we were created for the purpose of the re-expression of God's many perfections. And when we fail to do that, and that happens all the time, right? Our lives, for instance... When we're pursuing money, when we're pursuing power, when we're pursuing fame, when we're pursuing our own preferences and our own tastes, when we're hateful and prejudiced and unkind, when, when we do those things, we, we are not re-expressing a perfection of God. We are expressing our own imperfection, right? And that happens in our lives all day, every day. It's why we need a redeemer because we're all broken. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God on a regular basis, But it's also worth noting, not only uh, that we can produce glory for God, but it's also worth noting, and and 1 Peter talks about this, that the difficulties we face produce glory for God. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your, your faith, the salvation of your souls." Peter says, you may be going through something difficult as a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself says, it will be hard to follow him. Read Matthew 10. He says, all men will hate you because of me. But Peter affirms that when we go through difficulty because of our faith, that that actually produces glory for God in the tested genuineness of our trust in him, right? So glory. When we talk about the treasure of the kingdom, right? It's possible in this room that some of you, when you think about treasures in heaven, you were picturing like rubies and emeralds and diamonds and things that at some point God is keeping in a treasure chest for you up in space somewhere. And that someday then, this is what I thought when I was a little kid, someday he's going to hand you that treasure chest full of rubies and diamonds and emeralds and gold bars. And then in a moment of great humility, you're going to take that treasure chest and your crown and whatever, and you're going to lay it at his feet, right? There's a picture in the Bible of uh, laying, we just read it in Revelation 4, of elders laying their crowns. And so sometimes we think about treasure, we're thinking about things that are still just part of the value system of earth, rubies and emeralds and diamonds. But if you look at Revelation closely, you'll see that in heaven and in eternity, the streets, it says, are, are paved with gold, right? Gold is the equivalent of asphalt in eternity. So what does have value in the kingdom of God? Well, first and foremost, It's the glory of God because first and foremost, it is God himself who is our treasure. God is the treasure in the kingdom of God, right? And we have the opportunity to invest in the most valuable. I'm not going to call it a commodity. I had commodity written in my notes and I scratched it out. Because the definition of a commodity is something something that can be bought and sold. The glory of God cannot be bought and sold, right? It can't be bought and sold. So it's not a commodity, 
but it is a treasure. It is something precious in the kingdom of God. And when you glorify God today, check this out. When you glorify God today with your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, a re-expression of his many perfections, when you do that with intention, that glory for God is locked in time and space. If you glorified God this morning around the breakfast table with your kids or your family, if you glorify God on your way to church in the way that you treated other drivers in traffic, that glory for God is fixed in time and space. It does not rust. It cannot be stolen. It does not deteriorate. If you're a dirty, rotten sinner this afternoon, which you definitely will be, that glory for God in those moments is secure. It is there for all time and space. The moments when you have been sacrificial and the moments when you have expressed the love and the grace and the kindness of God, those moments are fixed in time and they cannot be taken. They will not be destroyed. They will not erode. They do not rust. You want to invest in something that lasts forever. Glorify God today. It never goes away. The glory of God is the treasure, the premier treasure of heaven. God's glory has value. In fact, it's the most valuable thing in the kingdom of God. Everything else serves this end. We talk about, um, when we talk about the death and resurrection of Christ, as we'll talk about on Good Friday and Easter, sometimes we try and make the resurrection and the death of Christ be all about us, right? Why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did he die? Why did he rise from the dead? Because he, he needed me. He was so lonely up in heaven and he just wanted a bald guy to hang out with. And so he came and died, right? If you make the purpose of Christ about you, you've just made yourself the treasure of heaven. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did he die on the cross? Why did he rise from the dead? Well, he certainly did it as an expression of his love. But what was the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose was the glory of God. The glory of God. Yes, he rescues us. Yes, he redeems us. Yes, the love, the perfect love of God was put beautifully on display, right? But he didn't do it just for the sake of proving that love was possible. He did it that God would be glorified. Jesus died and rose from the dead to glorify God through the rescuing of his people, right? Everything else, everything we do in a worship service, everything we do with these facilities, the the church that's gathering across the street that we would embrace and wrap our arms around. Why? Why wouldn't we be in competition with Pastor James, right? Why wouldn't we be worried that he's going to get more people than us or have a bigger budget than us or whatever? Because we're not fighting over temporal things that don't last. What is it we're doing? Together, we're pursuing the glory of God. He's doing the same thing we're doing. Why wouldn't we get our arms around him, right? The glory of God. Everything else, everything else serves this one singular economic driver. The glory of God. So since money and status and knowledge and comfort are temporal and unsatisfying, why treasure them, right? Why treasure them? That's what Jesus says. Why are you chasing after these things that don't matter? The guy says, hey, tell my brother to share my inheritance. And he goes like, this this doesn't, I don't want to spend any time on that because your inheritance is only for this much time. Let's talk about something that's forever. Let's talk about the treasure of heaven. Let me ask you this this morning, church. What, what, would, what would treasuring the glory of God look like in your life? I'm going to give you four quick things. Four quick things. God's glory can be pursued. It can be pursued, right? You can make a decision just like you might pursue money or fame or power or weight loss or reputation or more followers on Facebook or whatever. You can pursue God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.1 says that. Or 10.31 says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, pursue God's glory. 
Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's that talking about? Jesus there is talking about the pursuit of God's glory. And intention is everything. Intention is everything. Let me say it again. It is possible for you to come into a worship service like this one and sing and cry and put your hands in the air. But if your intention is to draw attention to yourself, God is not glorified in that, right? And you can come into a worship service like this and put your hands in your pockets and not sing a word and not even pay attention to what's going on. And if you're focused on the glory of God, that is worship. See the difference? Intention. It has everything to do with your pursuit of God's glory. What would it look like to treasure the glory of God? Number one, it would look like pursuing it. Secondly, I want to affirm that God's glory can be achieved. That God's glory can be achieved. John chapter 15 verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, right? Jesus says it is possible to glorify God. And how do we do that? By abiding in him, abiding in his love and abiding in his word, which is obedience. Obedience to the things that he said. I want you to know that you can glorify God, that it is achievable. It's not like your weight loss goals that you sort of wonder if you'll ever hit. The glory of God is something that you can do because it's all about intention. It's about a heart that values the glory of God above all things. Thirdly, not only should God's glory be pursued, not only can God's glory be achieved, but thirdly, God's glory can be displayed and should be displayed. Right Back to 2 Corinthians. I told you we were going to come back to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What's the treasure? The glory of God in the face of Jesus, right? That he's put in us. And we have that treasure in this, whatever this is, right? I have that treasure, the glory of God in this vessel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way and not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe. And so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of of God, right? Increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. It is possible, right, to display the glory of God in your earthen vessel, right? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what level of education. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have. It doesn't matter any of the things that the world says has value are less important than the fact that God has put his glory in the face of Christ in you to be shined, right? We have to pursue it. There's intention there. It can be achieved. It should be displayed. 
And then last and finally, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7 say, May the God of endurance and of encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The fourth emphasis, I would say, what would it look like if we treasured God's glory more than we treasure anything else? The fourth is that we, with togetherness, will glorify God in unity and in harmony. My fourth point, maybe, is that the glory of God can be shared. And by that, I don't mean put on display, because we've already talked about that. But I mean, in the same way that you find the most joy from loaning out your record collection, or you find the most joy from loaning out your favorite pair of shoes to someone who really loves them once to wear them. I don't know what you loan out. I loan those things out, right? Music and shoes. But it... In the same way that taking something tangible becomes more valuable when you give it away or you share it with other people, an incredible breakfast burrito is much better shared, right? Not to keep hammering the breakfast burrito, but you get what I'm saying. In the same way, the glory of God can be held together and in unity and in harmony and in peace. When we hold the glory of God together, it only exponentially grows in its re-expression of the many perfections of God that we could be united in glorifying him only says something even more beautiful about who God is. So as we talk about kingdom economics, as we head towards Easter, as we head toward a study in Ecclesiastes that will reaffirm that all of the things of this life are fading, I want to start here today by saying everything we do and everything we are and everything we endeavor to become should be centered on the treasure of heaven. And the treasure of heaven is God and his glory so that every thought and word and deed and attitude can be pursued for the glory of God, can be put on display, can be shared, and can be accomplished as we abide in Christ in his love and in his word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that your values are different than ours. And we recognize that in a message like this one, the the tangible, the practical, how do I pursue your glory? How do I achieve it? How do I display it? How do I share it? All of those things require nuance in the life of each believer because we're all different and we work in different places and we have different hobbies and, and different priorities. And God, I pray that you would that you would speak by the power of your spirit into the life of every person who calls this church home and give us a roadmap for your glory in our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our attitudes that we would treasure you and our re-expression of your many perfections as the most important thing both in our world and in all of creation. That we would invest in things today that cannot spoil or fade or be stolen, that will never disappear, that cannot be taken away, that our glorification of you in in these moments lasts forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.